Hello, and welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today, our guest is Max Factory III, and we will be talking with him about challenges to arbitration. Uh, Max is one of the most distinguished neutrals uh, in California. He has been a mediator and arbitrator for over 20 years. Before then, he had a 30-year career in other practice areas. He worked as a deputy city attorney in public interest areas. He worked in private practice and very significant private transactions in conflict resolution. But most importantly, he has become and is one of the most thoughtful commentators on how ADR works and should work, what the challenges to it are, and how they should be met. Max, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. You're welcome. Thank you for the kindness of your introduction and the privilege of being on your podcast. Well, this is very timely because uh, there have been many challenges to arbitration, but there is one now current uh, that I think sets the stage for the discussion we're going to have. And we're really going to be discussing this in the context of what are the challenges and how can they be met to make arbitration and ADR more effective. But the challenge is coming from an act that passed the previous uh, Congress, passed the House, but not the Senate. And it's analogized as the FAIR Act. And the object of the FAIR Act, which is stands for Forced Arbitration and Justice Repeal. You get the sense from the title. The key is that this act bans all pre-dispute arbitration clauses in many areas. We will talk more technically about what the act does, but that's why that's the core of what we'll be talking about because this act, it was in the old Congress for those of you who wanna read it and you should, uh, HR 1423, it passed the House got nowhere in the Senate, but with the new Senate, uh, there will be a, a very substantial uh, drive to pass it. You can almost say that when it passed the House in 2020, it got to the 50 yard line. It is now in the red zone in terms of potentially scoring, in terms of the analogy. And because of that, because it bans all pre-dispute arbitration clauses, and it says in consumer and employment cases, but as you read the text, it really is broader than that. And so we now enter an area where if the pre-dispute clauses and pre-dispute arbitration clauses have been so much a part of the growth of arbitration recently, suddenly there will be a new form, if we can use the word, of competition uh, between arbitration and court processes, between ADR and other processes. And what people then think, because there will not have been a previous contractual commitment in many cases, why people might choose ADR and arbitration as opposed to a court system uh, becomes a very critical question. So Max, let's, let's talk about that. That's the challenge. Uh, the FAIR Act only applies to, uh, uh, on its face, the consumer and employment, though, it, as I said, it is technically broader. But that's not the only form of arbitration. Let's put it in context. I mean, there are many different forms of arbitration beside consumer and employment arbitration, aren't there? A great deal of what you do, ordinary commercial arbitration between businesses involves somewhat different considerations, doesn't it? Hugely different. And there's, of course, uh, uh, trade, ar trade arbitration between uh, under treaties uh, internationally. And uh, there are also uh, many forums 
um, Hong Kong, London, Paris, in, in which um, we have forums that arbitrate disputes between uh, kind of individuals, but mostly businesses uh, between who are in different countries. Uh, because as we all know, you can one may have a supply chain with uh, six or seven different nations involved in getting a product to market. And uh, when something goes wrong at the end, uh, there are going to be multiple parties, a multilateral situation in which every party probably that entered into the negotiation was thinking in terms of their own culture and their own national standards for what the remedies are. And they may even have conflicts between the contracts um, at each stage of the supply chain. And of course, issues of enforceability. Um, one, one could uh, easily see that manufacturing that started in, uh, in China or Vietnam, Vietnam or Thailand could have very different contractual provisions. And then the product may, may and almost certainly will go uh, through a transportation process and it'll be dressed very often in another nation, maybe Mexico or Canada, um, and then sent to America and you have multiple treaties involved also. So when the product arrives and something's not right, uh, there are these multiple forums um, in order to decide the case. I don't, I don't see those as issues because we have highly sophisticated players. We have nations who've entered into treaties. And while one may feel emotionally, I don't like this treaty or I don't like this dispute resolution procedure, or perhaps what's most important to the party who feels harmed, um, or maybe the other way around. Um, I don't like the uh, sanctions or the enforcement processes at the end of the road. Um, however, when one enters into contracts of that sort, one's responsible for understanding agency at each step of the way. And there are costs to having that kind of knowledge that should be factored, no pun on my name, please, that should be factored in, into the contract because, you know, socially you may hear at a cocktail party, someone say, well, I'm getting this uh, manufactured in Vietnam because it's so many, you know, here's the cost and here's the transportation they use and, and I'm gonna make a lot of money compared to India or compared to China, whatever the conversation may be, uh, or Mexico or Canada. And um, unless they're thinking of each step in that supply chain, and unless they're thinking of how can one enforce the agreement if there's a failure, the quality is inadequate or the amount of supplies are inadequate. Um, and we've just experienced in a pandemic, it's easy to see that uh, one nation may have a set of laws about impossible, commercial impossibility to perform and say, we didn't deliver these because of the pandemic. And the recipient who's entered into contracts has exists in a nation where that's not a defense to the failure to deliver the products uh, down the line. I yeah, know that's a very good and thorough review of the whole area. These other areas, uh, commercial arbitration between US companies, which may take place in a state. And if there's been confirmed that a final judgment is enforceable any place in the United States under the full faith and credit clause, 
international commercial arbitration falls within New York Convention and may be enforceable internationally. But the interesting thing about the FAIR Act is that the pre-dispute clauses uh, in consumer and employment arbitration and the FAIR Act as drafted, and by the way, this is the act that passed the Congress, it will be put in again, it will pass the House again. It may be modified somewhat, but it is the model and it has to be considered. Uh, essentially, its key clause says all, all pre-dispute uh, arbitration agreements in its defined areas, consumer and employment, are invalid. And have to take a look at the act to see how broad it is. But for example, it includes in that all, all matters mentioned in section 62A of the, or 62E, pardon me, of the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, and it's just a cryptic reference. But when you go to that section of the code, you see that this is far, far broader uh, than what uh, we would consider normal consumer and employment, it includes everything under Title 10. It includes some people that are in businesses. So this is this act, this FAIR Act, that will come up again uh, and is, it, it may very well be passed in this Congress, is the most significant amendment uh, to arbitration in the United States since the enactment of the original Federal Arbitration Act. And so what will happen here, and that's what we're looking to, if it passes, there will suddenly be an area of competition because people after the dispute arises will have to choose between arbitration and going to court. And the question will become for people in ADR, why might arbitration be a preferable way in the new area of competition? Uh, than simply going to court. And that's what we want to talk about. How is this new, this new arena, how is this new environment, if in fact the FAIR Act passes? Uh, and it's relevant as well, and I want to move it to those two as we move forward, to other forms of arbitration, even though they're different, because so many of the things we're going to talk about in terms of why arbitration might be preferable also applies to why people might choose uh, to do arbitration after the dispute even in the commercial areas involved. So Max, let's start. You're talking about, we had a pre-dispute clause. It is now declared invalid. The parties have to decide and put aside the, for the moment, whatever politics may be involved, but whatever economics of law practice, the parties have to decide what are the advantages and disadvantages of arbitration. You're making the choice now after the dispute versus taking that dispute to court. Where do you start? So I'm not, where I start is not going to be a direct answer to your question. Uh, so don't hold your breath. Uh, and I have a broad smile on my face. Uh, there's a reason why there was an explosive growth of pre-dispute arbitration clauses. So I would like to start by talking about why this is an issue today, and it was not an issue a decade ago or two decades ago. And the short answer is very much part of human nature, which is at some point during the last 20 years, it became increasingly clear to uh, businesses in particular, and by business, I'm not talking just corporate businesses, we're talking professions, uh, dentists, doctors, architects, engineers, uh, we're talking universities and so forth. It became increasingly clear that there was an opportunity to have tactical advantages in disputes by keeping a matter 
outside of the court system of the states and outside the federal court system. And so progressively over the last 20 years and depending upon the type of institution, a series of clauses started to find their way into pre-dispute arbitration clauses to cause the arbitration to be more likely than not less fair to one of the parties. And um, at the same time, and I wanna put this in context, uh, back in the 1880s, that shows where I'm coming from, back in the 1980s and 1990s, the Supreme Court of the United States passed a trilogy of cases on arbitration, which indicated arbitration has a number of significant advantages. And that the Supreme Court said that the, where there's an arbitration clause, it should be used. And they've followed the, that line of thinking in a number of areas where I wouldn't have gone, but that's not important because the, the rules of the court are set out so we can govern our conduct, uh, not so that we get our wishes. Um, so if I, can, what, if I can pause for a moment, and you may be going there in any case, and you're absolutely right to have started where you have, but this was not only in individual arbitration clauses, but of course the Supreme Court applied it to arbitration clauses that contain class action waivers in the conceptual case. And that's what really set off, and you can go into that, the explosion of these pre-dispute clauses. Right, and, and that of course is post 2000. I think it's 2001, but close enough, it might be 1999. Uh, so you have this first set of this trilogy that we all learned about, and it pointed out all the things that are actually quite true. Run efficiently and professionally, arbitrations cost materially less than being in court. Um, one gets to select an arbitrator who will presumably have deep knowledge and professionalism about the particular area of the dispute. Whereas in the court system, you may have maritime courts or tax courts. Um, we don't have in many uh, systems, um, highly seasoned people who just do torts or highly seasoned people who just do airplane crashes and so forth, um, or international disputes of all sorts of different subgroups and not gonna even try and list them. Uh, so you can select an arbitrator who will have the kind of knowledge and say in a real estate matter that simply wouldn't be available to you in a court system. You can select a set of processes that are very cost efficient and don't prejudice either party, provided that the arbitration clause is, is, is drafted by professionals on both sides. Um, so you have a flexibility in what you ask for. In court, if there was a genuine dispute as to material facts, an, an, an advocate would probably seldom if ever say to a court, well, your honor, if you find this way, it would be $10,000. And if you find this way, it would be $90,000. And none of us were there at the time. And I think an appropriate resolution would be $50,000. We wouldn't say that because it probably violates some of our rules of ethics unless we had the explicit permission of our client. Um, and a court might hear that and still think, well, I'm not gonna do that. I have to choose which story is credible and I have to enforce the law as it's written, either applying the facts as I understand them. 
Whereas in arbitration, one not only can make that argument, but it may be successful because an arbitrator does not have to make uh, an absolute decision as to the specific material facts upon which uh, she or he are relying or the, all the laws. Uh, so equity, even though in the California Civil Code, for example, says that you know there's a right to every wrong and there's practice of equity, all those maxims in our California Civil Code, again, no pun intended, uh, all those maxims in the California Civil Code, um, they really are applied in arbitrations. Now, I don't think it's acceptable on a personal or a social justice matter for an arbitrator to do that without discussing it with, with counsel and the parties in advance. Um, because if parties come expecting that the law be applied in a certain way, that the facts be, uh, that the arbitrator make a decision as to who's telling the truth, what's credibility, they should, that kind of expectation should be met by the arbitrators. And some arbitrators, uh, or so I'm told, uh, some ar arbitrators will split the baby just to get a decision out and to get on with things. And so I'm not talking about arbitrators who are like juries that are doing nullification. I'm talking about arbitrators who aren't certain, and so they reach a compromise. But you However, have, of course, you have in the course of talked about this mentioned juries, and I think in terms of this discussion, in terms of people making the evaluation, uh, that's a, a very important point, uh, and that has been uh, in in the in a lot of the argument objection to the pre-dispute arbitration clause, which said it takes away the jury trial right, Correct. and you know you, you can't just waive a jury trial in in a contract, but if you go through an arbitration agreement, you effectively have have waived the the uh, the uh, jury trial. And so that's become a significant thing. And I think also we should make clear that that it, though it's been implicit is that everything we're talking about, including the statutory changes in the federal act, everything the US Supreme Court has done in the trilogy of cases, what it did in conception, what it's done in this, all the subsequent cases are all statutory. There are no constitutional issues, no constitutional bulwarks uh, that the US Supreme Court cited or could or is used in its arbitration decisions. So it is totally statutory. And because it's totally statutory, uh, it is subject to change by the federal statute. And I do want to mention, as you're talking about, about this and what goes to arbitration, the FAIR Act includes another very, very significant issue in terms of the practice of arbitration. There has always been an issue about if, if one party contests whether the arbitration agreement is valid or not, the agreement to arbitrate, not the underlying agreement. Who decides, the arbitrator or the court? Uh, the, the court rulings have been that if the parties agree, the arbitrator uh, decides. Uh, many of the organizations have in their rules that the arbitrator decides. That is the general rule in international arbitration, the competence-competence issue, the arbitrator decides. But the FAIR Act expressly says, and this is one of the bits of dynamite in it, expressly says the applicability of this chapter to an agreement to arbitrate and the validity and enforceability of an agreement to which this chapter applied shall be determined by a court rather than an arbitrator, irrespective of whether the party resisting arbitration challenges the arbitration agreement specifically or in conjunction with other terms of the contract and irrespective of whether the agreement purports to delegate such determinations to an arbitrator. 
So this very fundamental issue of what of delegation to an arbitrator to decide the validity of the agreement, it also a dramatic change in much of the law of arbitration it's, as it's been applied. Uh, and, and that goes, I think, to the decisions people make about going to arbitration rather than going to court. You know, it's interesting, we're seeing that today because of the court calendars. There are now active decisions being made uh, in civil cases where lawyers are looking to 18 months, two year delay. We're talking about court systems that are not even scheduling civil jury, civil jury trials till 2022. And so for the first time, uh, many lawyers are looking at trying to negotiate an arbitration agreement uh, simply to get a resolution rather than wait for the court calendar. So this whole issue of, of broadly speaking, decision-making competitive choice between methods of dispute resolution uh, has become much more pronounced. And that also is, is part of the background of this uh, after we understand why historically uh, we've come to deal with these pre-dispute clauses. So let me address that and then, and, and then add something. Uh, that particular provision is very troubling because it distinctly adds to all of the participants' costs. It's kind of a subsidy for the legal profession. It takes cases that are almost certainly gonna be resolved in arbitration and it puts them in a court system. That means it, even if the court, the court system set a special court or a special proceeding, it would still then delay other cases within the public system. So even if they set a kind of traffic court that made the gateway decision, that would be taking resources away from all the other cases that are in the civil court system. So we have a long history of both the um, federal government and state legislatures underfunding court systems. To put on a court system, the hundreds of thousands, oh, that's wrong, millions of cases each year that are arbitrated one way or another, depending on the definition of a, a case and, and the number of clients, to put, put the burden on the court system to be the gateway, that there's a door to have that, even if it were a quick door, would mean that all the other cases in the system would be delayed. And if there weren't a quick door, it would really severely undermine one of the most significant benefits of arbitration. And that benefit is that when businesses have a dispute or a business and a consumer has a dispute, the thing we often hear is, we just want someone to make a decision so we can get on with our lives. And lawyers become jokes at cocktail parties because the cost to represent the client exceeds the value of the experience that the client's getting. So to have an act that's called FAIR, which is designed to raise the costs of resolving the litigation and implicitly designed to slow down justice for all cases that are civil cases as opposed to criminal cases, uh, whether or not they're subject to arbitration uh, or in the alternative to force the federal government to be funding specially uh, litigation which in, through the court system, which seems an improbable thing to happen or state legislatures to do it similarly improbable uh, means that that particular provision 
uh, should be, you know, identified as an unfair provision within the Fair Act. Well, we'll talk uh, more about what it what it means, what its limits are. Uh, it, by drafting, it, it may be interpreted and seems to be drafted only to making the decision about whether there's an enforceable arbitration agreement. But as you've said, that puts it into court anytime one of the parties chooses to contest that. That's one of the issues we've been talking about. We will continue to talk more about the current challenges to arbitration, but let's take a, a, a short break because those of you listening to this podcast, as you may know, can obtain one hour of MCLE credit through the Daily Journal. And let's take a break so you can hear how that MCLE credit, how you may obtain that MCLE credit. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com COVID. We're now back from the break. And when we left, we were talking about the provision of the FAIR Act. Uh, that passed the House in the last Congress and will pass the House and and undoubtedly go to the Senate, uh, unknown what the final result, but not unlikely that some form of it is adopted, uh, making clear that if there is an issue about whether there's an enforceable arbitration agreement, uh, that issue will be decided in the cases under the Act by a court, uh, not by uh, an arbitrator, uh, not by the designated arbitrator. so the question is, why, why was this controversial? I mean, giving arbitrators the authority to decide this issue of the, of the enforceability and validity of the arbitration agreement has been a standard provision in international arbitration. It is not unusual. It is part of the rules, uh, which, by the way, are up before the Supreme Court now, the issue about whether the rules of an administering organization delegating to the arbitrator are sufficient to do the delegation. But putting that that aside in the current context, this is not an unusual provision to have the arbitrator decide. So in terms of the view of arbitration, why the opposition to having the arbitrator make that decision? Why the insistence and the importance of this provision in the FAIR Act? What was the background to the issue? Well, that, that's, that's simple and intuitive. An arbitrator has a financial interest in the arbitration going forward because an arbitrator earns compensation by having the arbitration that's been referred to her or him occur. On top of that, there's a further conflict. The organization, which is going to be uh, managing the arbitration and providing services, whether it's um, JAMS or AAA or any number item, I'm not going to try and list every arbitration organization. Those organizations have an economic interest in the arbitration moving forward. 
And so there would be a sense that the outcome would be biased because on the decision-making for that one issue because there's an economic interest by the judge, if you may call that, the, the person judging, um, to decide, yes, this should be arbitrated. Um, so people recoil, uh, right or wrong, when they're thinking of quote unquote justice, that there's an economic interest in the decision maker. And yet, if one can stand the humor, all the same lawyers and the same litigants or disputants who may recoil at that particular conflict go to uh, doctors and dentists and architects and engineers and they ask these professionals, which of these services should I get? And the doctor examines you and tells you what to do. And you don't go, you don't, no one I know of, uh, they might seek a second opinion, but I think few people would say, before I go to my architect, engineer, doctor, or dentist, I'm going to go to another architect, engineer, doctor, or dentist, whose sole job will be to tell me what services I should get from a professional so that my professional isn't conflicted. So there's a suspicion uh, of arbitration, perhaps one could psychologically identify a number of reasons why, a lack of trust that um, is not normal, is usually accorded to professionals when one goes to professionals for services. And the same applies just for buying products. We walk into a store and we're trying to decide what TV to buy. Now we may go to consumer reports, which one could say is an analog of a court system and decide in advance what we're gonna do. But once we get in that store and we ask the salesperson, some stores say, and it's probably true, that their salespeople aren't on commissions at all, but just common sense, Sechel tells one that if a salesman isn't making sales at a certain rate, that salesman is, is not gonna do well. And if the salesman is particularly talented, that salesman's gonna get management um, responsibilities and additional pay to teach other salespeople. So whether it's a commission or not, when one just buys in a retail store, a television or a, a, a dishwasher or what, whatever, an automobile, one goes into an automobile dealer. Now here, most people have already decided they want a particular type of automobile, but what model and all the add-ons and things, we know the kind of pressure that's put on us. And we just find a way to go through that process and make independent judgments about trustworthiness and veracity. But in areas, and yet, but in areas involving uh, some sophisticated transactions, uh, and I'm, I'm leading up to the question of, is there a difference here between the pre-dispute clause on this issue and the agreement that may be done by sophisticated businesses or after the dispute arises? In some areas of the economy, that is a significant issue. You see it even in in television, where some financial advisors say, you know, we say we're a fiduciary, we don't advise any products out of which we get commissions. And investors look at that as a as an issue for some. Am I getting advice from someone who's getting a commission out of what I try to do? Or am I simply paying for a service in which the person making the decision doesn't benefit? But it leads up to the question about why this was so important to the drafters of this agreement. Why did it, does it make a difference in the pre-dispute? I mean, you can say in terms of what you're saying 
among sophisticated business people, even if even in a pre-dispute, if it's a business dispute, sophisticated lawyers, they understand the trade-off between speed, efficiently, and, and the issues you've raised. But in the consumer and employment area, and assume for the moment, even though, as I said, the statute itself uh, arguably goes beyond that. But in the pure consumer employment area, speaking specifically on the pre-dispute uh, agreement, do you think there's any more validity uh, to that argument that you're not only asking me to sign this clause, but because of the rule that the arbitrator that's chosen uh, makes the decision, you're forcing me into an area where there may be a conflict without my conscious agreement or choice at this time? So. Uh, once again, I've got, got a broad smile because uh, you're raising exactly the reasons why there was an explosion starting around 2000 in the number of cases of arbitration. Um, the Hooters case, just to use one of them, um, simply because might as well use a pun case. Um, the, I think the court repeated four, five, six times how unconscionable the rules and procedures were uh, that were set up by Hooters if an employee, you, you couldn't be an employee with, without signing this arbitration clause. And the arbitration clause said that the employee would follow the rules and procedures as amended by the corporation. Um, Hooters didn't even provide rules and procedures in case you happen to have a sophisticated employee. And in any event, they changed them from time to time without telling the employee and then they would give the employee documents to sign that would confirm they've agreed to all the rules. Um, so uh, what were kind of rules that were in here? Well, uh, they, they had a, a provision that assured that the arbitrators selected would be one that they wanted. Um, it was, they had a, a process where each party picked an arbitrator and then the arbitrator picked from a list and the only arbitrators who could be on the list were arbitrators that Hooters designated. So, and then that was the arbitrator. So Hooters always got the arbitrator they wanted and there's a repeat player bias. Uh, but beyond that, and with respect to the professionalism of arbitration, different people take different views on, and that's why among other things, you, perhaps you raise, don't, I don't wanna talk about the politics of, of these things. And the reality is whether it's, um, uh, whether the mar caveat emptor or whether it's the definition of uh, sexual harassment or whether it's uh, a workplace that is not tolerable, uh, different arbitrators take different views. And so Hooters would know the views of those arbitrators and would be able to select someone who was acting professionally and in good faith, however, had an opinion as to what the law meant in, in a way that uh, determined the outcome. On top of that, there were, I don't remember all the details, there were so many, they, they, can, they can capped the damages, they uh, limited the type of damages, um, they, there were waivers of discovery, there were, uh, there were rights to change the form. You, if you were in arbitration and they were unhappy, they could move it and so there, there, I'm, there were, I don't have enough fingers and toes, or maybe with fingers and toes, I could get the type of limitations. I used the Hooters case because it had so many, but the types of issues that arose um, are li limitations on the amount of damages. We've all seen that. 
we, we, get, we get contracts with businesses and if we bother to read it, it says that you're limited to the cost of replacing the item, no matter how much harm was caused or you're not allowed any consequential damages, only the cost of your initial cost of purchase. There are limitations on the types of damages, not just caps, such as no punitive or exemplary damages, which should, in I can say two things about this. Some of these provisions uh, could validly be put in contracts, even if arbitration were not involved. That is, businesses can agree that if there's a dispute between them, there should be no punitive damages or or limit other things, and that that is uh, uh, that often is is upheld. Uh, they can agree on agreed upon statement of what damages would be for certain things. But is what you're saying in terms of using the Hooters case as an example, in terms of some of the procedures that were put in that case of choosing the arbitrator, is that what happened with many businesses is that they over overreached. It wasn't simply a case of preferring arbitration for its intrinsic value as a more efficient dispute resolution method. It was using the arbitration clause as a way to achieve non-arbitration ends in terms of resolving the dispute. And so it's the overreach of the provisions that were put in the arbit arbitration clause uh, that caused so much of the opposition to yes. the clause. That, that's well said. As I recall, and I may be mixing two cases up, but I think the employee had to file the claim in a, in a Paris jurisdiction um, and uh, then um, and had to follow certain procedural rules and then Hooters defined in what city uh, uh, the process would take place. It, the uh, cost issues were also um, uh, offensive. And so, yes, uh, you've, you've taken 10 minutes of what I said and put it correctly and precisely into one word. It was the overreach, uh, the unconscionability um, that, uh, uh, you know, was it uh, Potter Stewart? I, I know it when I see it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that, that's, that's the basis of it. It's um, amazing how Stewart's view of perceiving pornography has governed so many other areas. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but let's let, let's do an exercise here because I think it's helpful. So suppose you are uh, take you out of your role as an arbitrator for a moment, or even as an arbitrator, have the discussion. So the, the Fair Act passes, and there's a pre-dispute clause, but it's no longer enforceable in a consumer or an employment case. And the person representing the plaintiff comes to you and says, "Pre-dispute clause is now invalid. I've got the choice of going to court." I can still choose arbitration if I wish. So now talk to that counsel and that client. Why should they go to arbitration voluntarily if the pre-dispute clause is not enforceable? It, it's a good question. And there, there are different levels of the answer. Uh, first, one has to know the jurisdiction one's in, so one knows what the alternatives are. When I started to practice law, and I don't feel like an old codger, uh, the time to get to a, a jury trial was five years. And in significant amounts of those cases, one either granted that or had the displeasure of the judge who just could not hear the case. I will, I will interrupt you for a personal 
the first case I ever tried in the old apartment one of the LA Superior Court. I was sitting in the courtroom on the 365th day of the fifth year. And if the case were not called that day, the five-year statute would have been violated. And I went, even as a young lawyer, to the presiding judge. And I said, this is the situation. And the court did what it often did at that time, since all that had to happen is the trial had to begin, which was the case was assigned out uh, for initial proceedings, for a witness to be sworn or something to be made so that the trial could be said to have started and then adjourned. And in that way, the precise five-year period. But every case, uh, and I think I may have been doing this longer than you, uh, but at that time in Department One of the Superior Court, long before moving to individual calendaring and other reforms, that made a real difference in later years that moved the timetable up to 18 months to two years. But every case almost ran up against the five-year deadline. And I've always considered myself very fortunate that as a young lawyer, I realized that in my first case and didn't simply let the fifth year go by. <laughs> so picking, picking up on that, because there are many um, uh, responses on just this level, it's not the issue of five years. It matters to the parties. It matters to the judge. If one is hearing testimony from something that happened three years ago or two years ago or four years ago, which is what courts are gonna be doing in, in the next couple of years, people will not remember clearly. And the, the natural uh, human deficiencies where we forget certain things because they're painful and we remember or revise our memory on others because it allows us to feel better and affirm ourselves. All those things come into effect. And even if you have an earlier deposition, when the actual testimony takes place two and a half, three years later, then there'll be, even if you had an early deposition, a conflict between the actual testimony and the deposition. And so you don't get justice delayed is justice confused at best because the witnesses won't be providing the information that they would have provided it were it timely. There are many situations that are time sensitive in, in terms of their resolution. Uh, individuals may need a decision or corporations in order to get on with their lives. And if it's, you know, their I won't share this. Yeah, I will share the story. Uh, many years ago, I was at a, a judicial conference. No, I'm not a judge. Um, and uh, I, I spoke that, that day. And I sat next to a judge who uh, had a long history as defense counsel. And so I, I just said, uh, for insurance companies. And so I said, why is it that 100% of the cases I touch and everybody in our firm, uh, the insurance company, and this is 30 years ago, the insurance companies move for summary judgment when there's no possibility that they're gonna, that they're gonna get summary judgment. And why are there so many delays? It can't just be the money, the value of money. And he laughed and he said, you would be surprised the percentage of people who die, who lose interest in the case, who move to another jurisdiction, who get a divorce. And he just, he said, by and large for several of the companies that I represented between five and 10% of the, 
of all the cases we delayed simply went away even though we had liability. I'm going to, you know, the time, so, your timing here is so critical in terms of the litigants, in terms of sense of justice, in terms of the resolution. As we continue discussing that timing, we will take another break in our own timing because though what we're talking about is an important news story and a current issue, the Daily Journal covers many different news stories. It is the essential uh, press for the California legal community. And let's take a break to hear about current other stories. The weekly brief is brought to you by the Daily, Daily Journal, Journal, California's is, largest is legal newspaper. Here are some of our top stories from the week of January 25th. A veteran appellate lawyer says the Third District Court of Appeals has been too slow in handing down decisions. John Eisenberg sent the complaint to the Commission on Judicial Performance, saying the problem appears to stem from three of the court's longest-serving veterans, Justices Coleman Bleese and William Murray Jr. and Presiding Justice Vance Ray. Eisenberg says he's been a private appellate attorney for 26 years, and he and many of his colleagues share stories of long delays from briefing to submission. Data from the Judicial Council's annual court statistics report backs up Eisenberg's claims. The 3rd District has seen delays since at least 2004, and the problem seems to be getting worse. The 2019 report showed the 3rd District has the highest level of pending appeals per justice, a staggering 44% higher than the statewide average. Though Eisenberg acknowledged the 3rd District appears to be overburdened, he said it does not excuse underperformance. A blistering report on California's unemployment fraud pointed out two major failures. The first, long-standing problems that left the state's Employment Development Department vulnerable to the COVID-driven financial crisis. The second, California Labor Secretary Julie Su's decisions in the ensuing flood of new claims. The audit specifically points to EDD suspending its determinations of eligibility and the temporary hold on collecting bi-weekly eligibility certifications. These fraudulent unemployment claims are expensive. Sue said that of the unemployment funds distributed since March, 10% have been confirmed as fraudulent, with another 17% currently being investigated. That comes to at least $11 billion in fraudulent payments, and it could continue to rise. After a lengthy court battle, SoCal Edison reached a $2.2 billion settlement to resolve insurance subrogation claims arising from the 2018 Woolsey fire. More than 100 insurance carriers will split the lump sum and receive reimbursement for future payments to an agreed-upon cap. Edison was facing thousands of lawsuits from people and entities affected by the Woolsey Fire, which burned more than 98,000 acres in Ventura and Los Angeles counties. BurgerCon managing partner Craig Simon credits the result to Judge William Heiberger's management of the case and Peter Lichtman's mediation. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're back now from hearing about the Daily Journal news coverage, and we've been talking about the importance of delay and timing. And that's a very significant factor because, uh, especially today, so you've talked to people, and the first thing you say when you're talking, we now have a, a discussion here, talking to plaintiff's counsel, why should plaintiff's counsel come to arbitration instead of uh, a, a civil court uh, where there may be a jury? There are other things involved that will be raised, but. The first thing you say is look time. You're gonna be looking at three to four years and that means a great deal to your client. We can get done in 12 to 18 months. You can set out a schedule and say, we're gonna to stick to this schedule and get done in, in, in 12 to 18 months. So time is one advantage 
And that is one of the advantages that's driving the discussion now in, in calendars of civil cases that are backed up. But in addition to timing, uh, the council raises other issues, says, well, wait a minute, uh, I've got no appeal. I've got different procedures. What other, what, why, I put timing on the face of, yes, we should go to arbitration to get this done sooner. But what other things should I be concerned about if I'm concerned about procedure and certainty and getting the result that I want? This is one of those, I'm glad you asked that question, questions. Thank you. Um, because there's been so many things, there've been people who've written about this. I may be pronouncing, well, I'm not pronouncing Richard Chernick's name wrong, but there's also hot, uh, the Honorable uh, David Hoopner, is that correct? Um, at JAMS. Uh, they, they wrote a paper called Making Arbitration Work, Best Practices. It's, it's really not very long. Uh, it's nine pages. And almost every deficiency that I have heard from arbitrators that this is what's wrong with arbitration can be handled by good contractual provisions. And to address specifically, um, and there's a court case in California. I can't speak for other jurisdictions. I can give you the court case. It's cable connection versus direct TV. If you need to cite, happy to give it to you. And, and it expressly says one can put into the arbitration agreement that the arbitrator uh, is, uh, uh, that there's an appeal based upon the same standards that exist in superior court. Uh, which is a material error of law or a failure of substantial evidence or whatever the evidence requirement may be for the particular cause of action. Uh, so that answers the appeal issue, but it goes much broader than that. In arbitration, there's so many opportunities for flexibility in designing the schedule, in being able to call witnesses, uh, in using techniques that allow the equivalent of a court trial to be half the time where one can submit a deposition and just do cross-examination. Uh, they're just, it's, it's sort of pointless. <laughs> I'd suggest one read the article, Making Arbitration Work Best Practices uh, by uh, uh, Mr. Chernick and, and the Honorable uh, David Hubner, because there really aren't other than the jury trial issue. Um, I believe any issues that I can think of readily, uh, which having a proper arbitration clause pre-dispute or negotiating with professionals um, and with the arbitrator prior to proceeding with the arbitrator, one can eliminate all of the negatives that I have heard about, and there are many, about arbitration, including the uncertainty of an outcome, including the lack of appeal, um, it's including the inability to introduce certain types of evidence. Um, all of those can be easily addressed. Uh, and also one can have uh, eliminate unnecessary motions one can handle electronic discovery far more efficiently because the provider services have sets of rules and one can agree to that. There are issues of confidentiality and privacy. And this is a very serious issue in many cases of defamation, 
um, in many cases of, of, of sexual harassment. Um, and it's in court, uh, and especially with a decision, I, uh, Ron George was the chief justice, so had to be more than 20 years ago, uh, uh, where he properly, in many instances, said transparency of what our courts are doing is so important that we are going to limit the amount of closed meetings we have. We're going to limit these kinds of privacy activities. And yet, for many disputes, one or both of the participants would agree to resolve the matter as long as it was confidential because otherwise exogenous considerations, whether they're competition or reputation and so forth, uh, would, would insist that they not settle the matter, but they litigate it. So I, these are things that adults with professional experience can negotiate and resolve so that arbitration would be the superior forum compared to a court trial. Compared to a jury trial, I can't help you. No, I think what it comes down to, and that's why the discussion is so important, because the, the confidentiality and privacy concerns in certain areas in, that it may impact, testimony that may impact reputation, uh, trade secrets that, that may be part of the proceeding, that if or otherwise you couldn't clear the courtroom, uh, there are clearly a range of things. And of course, if one wants a purely non-jury court proceeding, you can always choose a private judge, either under the California Constitution or Code of Civil Procedure provisions that make that more applicable. So what it really comes down to is balancing out the desire of a jury trial uh, for this other procedure. That's really, when you come right down to it, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, I think, based on what we've talked about today in terms of dealing with all the issues, uh, and so this is an issue, I can't thank you enough for going over these, these issues, Max, because as I said, for two reasons, these discussions and, and what uh, uh, Rich Turnick and David Huber spoke about, wrote about in their article, uh, these discussions are going to become more relevant in the immediate future. Uh, the likelihood of the FAIR Act is very much there and that will, in a, in a single stroke, wipe out what may be the largest source of private arbitrations today in the country, which are based on the three dispute clauses and court calendaring, uh, otherwise and also because of the pandemic, it is delaying the trials, are really making the choice of arbitration, will make the choice of arbitration, put more in a voluntary context than in the mandatory pre-agreed context. And the issues, and there are many that we have been discussing, are so critical to that. Max, I can't thank you enough for helping to illuminate this for all of us. Uh, your wisdom and experience here uh, gets more and more helpful uh, as we deal with these very prominent and very immediate issues. Thank you so much for joining us. May, may I add just one comment? It's a social justice concern. The way pre-dispute clauses have operated have not provided the kind of experience or the kind of fairness that we reasonably expect in our civil society. And so the FAIR Act needs to address a way so that one doesn't have to rely on highly sophisticated legal counsel to be negotiating each of these provisions. There, we need to address the 10 or 12 areas where having a consumer without legal counsel 
means that the consumer or just the ordinary small business simply cannot be effective in advocating their interests. And that needs to be part of the FAIR Act. That's a very important addendum to what we're discussing. It also is implicated because the act affects class actions as well, because this not just affects the individual consumer, but the right to bring the class action by the consumer or the employee. It's a very valuable addendum, and it's uh, well subject uh, for perhaps another session. Thank you, Max. Very much appreciate your time here. You're quite welcome. <laughs>